Tracy, we're on episode 100. We're on episode 100. 100. Do you remember <laughs> early on we were talking about like, well, could you imagine getting into the triple digits? Yeah, I do remember that. It was like <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> it was like yesterday, except I was sitting in a closet with um, a blanket over my head. I have So I have um, someone at work who listens to this podcast. Hi, if you're listening. And, um, you know, we have one-on-ones every couple of weeks and talk about it. And he's like, it's been so cool to see the growth of how, like, you started in a, you know, a closet and now have merch. I think our patrons were talking about that when I posted a selfie and, like, my kind of just normal setup now. But we really <laughs> have grown. And it's been thanks to everyone who's listened. Yeah, we have – we've got fancy stuff. Got some fancy stuff. Fancy, fancy feelings. <laughs> I would say I started with fancy feelings. Yeah, that's true. That that's not as new. Fancy, big, uh knockoff feelings. Maybe I just started with knockoff feelings and now we're on the real thing. Ooh. Oh, like imposter syndrome, but then you made it like real. Like vegan leather. <gasps> uh. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible for the environment and tacky to boot. Lost the plot on this analogy a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, this is episode 100. I'm Rowan Hall, and we have lost the plot on this podcast. Hi, I'm a misguided character in the story of this episode. What is happening? Tracy Harrison. (laughs) (laughs) And this is episode 100, so things can be a little crazy. Welcome to Willing and Fable. (laughs) The podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support the show, think about checking us out and leaving a review. It's a really great way to help new folks find the show, and we really appreciate you taking the time to spread the word about the podcast. You can also support the show by shopping our really cool... Episode 100, special merch drop. <laughs> this one is specifically oh waited until this episode. We we heard from you. We heard your requests. And we are dropping fuck Zeus merch. Actually, specifically, it's fuck Zeus. But don't fuck Zeus. Merch. <laughs> this is an ask and you shall receive moment. We've been working on this for a while. But then on top of that, we've had to hold on to it secretly mm. for a while. And that was painful. <laughs> oh, my God. I just wanted to show everyone. So thank you to our designer, Jamie Harrison, my sister. Amazing. At Fly Robot Fly. She did such a good job coming up with this design. It was actually – we have two designs. And I think they're some of the first two that she showed us. Yeah. So – this is an audio medium, so when you look at the shirt, it's it's our classic yellow colors on black, but the, where the little asterisks would be on the U so that you can say fuck, uh, there's a little lightning bolt. Uh-huh. It's awesome. And then we have special little stickers that are re- aggressive. They're just really aggressive. Yes, and they include uh, the statue, the famous statue of Zeus in that one. And we're really excited about it. You'll get to now see us wearing that merch a lot more because we've had to hide it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and as you can see, this episode is about Zeus. It is. We're finally doing it. it we had to save it for a special occasion. So episode 100 is all about Zeus. 
Everyone's been asking us, and I've been really nervous about it, because we really don't like this guy. No. it, And people know that. So they know, like, I think people are excited for us to just be angry for the next, I don't know, approximately two hours. Easily and done. <laughs> I think we needed to commit to being willing to be angry for two hours. Did you say willing so and fable? I, listen, Rowan, we've gone over this. I, as a human being, <laughs> say the phrase willing and able all the time, which means I then make myself laugh by saying willing and fable, and then no one gets it. so before we dive in this episode is not for the faint of heart content warning is everything because we're talking about zeus but more Mm -hmm. specifically sexual assault it's going to be the main topic of this episode we really want to tackle the reality of these stories and and do it right as much as we can so if that is not for you that's totally fine we'll see you in the next season But we hope that you'll stick around and enjoy our divine rage. Yes. It's all divine rage. It's feminine rage. It's feminine energy. It's, we're going to get a lot, you're going to get a lot thrown at you today. And I am, Rowan and I both talked about this was an intense episode to put together, but we're so excited, like so excited to share it with everyone. Yeah, and we're back to collaborating on episodes, which we do sometimes, but when it's an episode like this, it's especially fun. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so you ready to jump into it? Do it. Okay. Everyone listening, you might assume that Zeus in all his glory was brought to us by the ancient Greeks. If that's your thought, you might be surprised to learn that he was actually an ancient deity, and in fact there are versions of him that can be found in Hittite and Mesopotamian cultures. The name Zeus also dates back to the Proto-Indo-European language from around 4500 to 2500 BCE and derives from the words for day and sky. This ancient Zeus was known as the god of the bright sky. But where did our idea of Zeus come from? Well, according to the Theogony written by Hesiod around 720 BCE, there was another group of gods before the Olympian gods that the ancient Greeks worshipped. These were the Titans. Among them was Zeus's father Kronos, and Kronos was afraid that he would be destroyed by his own children, as Kronos had destroyed his father Uranus before him. In order to prevent this from happening, he decided that it was best if he just swallowed all of his children. To foil his plan, his wife Rhea decided to present him with a stone wrapped in a baby's blanket and pretend it was their newest child Zeus. Unaware that anything was wrong, Kronos swallowed the stone and forgot about the child. Zeus was then spirited away to Crete, where he was raised in secret. He was nursed by nymphs on the milk of the goat Amalthea and guarded by the warrior Curides, who drowned out the sound of the baby's crying with a shield-clashing battle dance. I love it. I do too. It's a Listen, if I'd known about that when I was babysitting. <laughs> if I'd known that was an option. <laughs> Once Zeus became an adult, his grandmother Gaia tricked Kronos into regurgitating all of his children. Then Zeus and his siblings formed a powerful group and went to war against the Titans. Zeus and this party eventually defeated them in a 10-year war, and they became the new heads of Olympus. Zeus became king of the gods and established his home on Mount Olympus. It was here that he assigned each Olympian deity with their responsibilities and spheres of influence. The Titans were the brothers and sisters of Kronos, and it was only through the help of the Cyclopses, who made Zeus's lightning bolts, and the hundred-handed giants, or Hecatonchores, that Zeus was finally able to imprison the Titans in Tartarus, the deepest part of the underworld. 
Making himself the ruler of the skies, Zeus then gave dominion over the seas to Poseidon and the underworld to Hades. There are a few symbols associated with Zeus, some of which include the thunderbolt, the eagle, and the oak tree, all images associated with power and strength. Due to its divine connotations, lightning was seen by the Greeks as a significant meteorological event and places struck by lightning were believed to be holy. Herodotus even claims that mountaintops, due to their proximity to the sky, are the most holy places to worship Zeus. But more than just lightning alone, Zeus's main spheres of influence were justice and fate. Mm -hmm. He was perceived as a protector, particularly of those on the fringes of society. Think foreigners, guests, strangers, and beggars. The epic poetry of Homer emphasizes the influence of this divine protection on social customs in ancient Greece. In the Odyssey, Princess Nausicaa discovers the shipwrecked and injured Odysseus. She warns those around her that, quote, we must look after him since all strangers and beggars come under the protection of Zeus. Okay, to my ears, there is an incredible irony in the god of justice mm -hmm. and protection committing so many acts of sexual assault, which is the primary focus of our episode, how Zeus relates to women in mythology, which we're going to discuss more later on. And when I was sort of fussing about this, <laughs> generally, <laughs> my friend Trevor actually said, well, the people who can afford the scribes tell the stories, right? which we've talked about a lot. And, and he went on to add that of course you would think that the big bad king god is your protector if you're an affluent man. And why would a story about a god-level man taking what he wants from a woman even touch your narrative of protection? And much less the way he moved through his wives. Mm. I think, and, and we'll talk about this later, but I don't want to gloss over it, that these stories may have acted as a means of granting powerful men permission to behave badly while simultaneously telling women how to respond. I'm interested on your thoughts as to the fact that he was considered the protector of strangers and beggars who are notably not the affluent men writing the stories. To me, that is, that's that like I'm a good person kind of energy. Mm -hmm. And then we get into the understanding of like how much are women people? I don't think women fall under his protection at all. Right. And women didn't have the rights of citizens in ancient Greece. Mm -hmm. And there is a fundamental difference between, you know, welcoming strangers and people in need and then thinking that you are owed sex whenever you want it. Yes. I think a big thing to talk about with this story, too, because we, you know, we love to dunk on Zeus and he deserves it. But I, I am also someone who is learning to make space for the word and in my life. So Zeus can be the protector of beggars and strangers. That could be potentially a good thing. And he also did a ton of awful things. And it doesn't, they don't need to be in conflict. He is a mythological figure, and it's really important to remember that within this pantheon, the ancient Greeks made their gods incredibly flawed. And living in America at the time we live here now, it's very, very easy to fall into the trap, myself included, uh, and I'm not a Christian, uh, but it's easy to fall into the trap of understanding Zeus, like big sky daddy, mm -hmm. the way Christian mythology understands their big sky daddy god. It's not a one-to-one. -one. And even no. though he is king of the gods, there are gods that have incredible amounts of power in 
monotheism, specifically Christian monotheism, that d- that doesn't really exist. Like the next rung down is quite far. Mm-hmm. So the and that you're talking about is intrinsic to the pantheon, n- yes. not just to how we want to interpret it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. And speaking of the broader pantheon, let's talk about Zeus's wives. Oh, gosh. I know. According to Hesiod, Zeus had a total of seven wives. His first wife was the Oceanid Metis, whom he swallowed while she was pregnant so that no son of his by Metis would overthrow him as had been foretold. Daddy issues. (laughs) It's a long line of daddy issues. It's daddy issues all the way down. Later, their daughter Athena would burst forth fully formed from his forehead. Next, Zeus married his aunt and advisor, Themis, who bore the seasons and the Mori, or fates. Then Zeus married the Oceanid Eurynome, who bore the three charities, or graces. Zeus's fourth wife was his sister, Demeter, who bore Persephone after Zeus sexually assaulted her. The fifth wife was his aunt, the titan Nemocene, whom he seduced in the form of a mortal shepherd. Zeus and Nemesine had the nine muses. His sixth wife was the titan Leto, who gave birth to Apollo and Artemis on the island of Delos. And finally, Zeus's seventh and most famous wife was his older sister Hera. Together, they had Ares, Hebe, Aletheia, and Hephaestus. The gods Eris, Enyo, and Angelos are also sometimes considered their children as well. Zeus is frequently depicted by Greek artists in one of three poses, standing, striding forward with a thunderbolt leveled in his right hand, or seated in majesty. (laughs) It was very important for the lightning bolt to be exclusively in his right hand, as the Greeks believed that people who were left-handed were associated with bad luck. Tracy, Mm -hmm. how's that going for you? Um, exceptional. I'm left-handed and I've had nothing but a wonderful, charmed life. I definitely don't feel cursed by bad luck from the gods. She's got a silver spoon in her left hand, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Okay, so I get to start us off by addressing the elephant in the room. Yeah, you, you... Okay, spoiler to everyone. Uh, Rowan texted me, pretty sure it was really late your time just going, Okay. I'm I'm researching bestiality in Greece. We have really weird jobs. (laughs) (laughs) My FBI agent is so upset at me. (laughs) (laughs) Have you found that you've reached the point where you can start typing in searches for our podcast and it might be the weirdest sentence ever and Google's like, oh, absolutely, I got you. I'll autofill that for you. Is this what you're looking for? You're looking for... This specific thing and this specific thing related to this other specific thing, I got you. Tracy, I had to look up the anatomy of swans. Oh, my God. Yeah. All right, let's get into it. Okay. So, if you are familiar with any myths about Zeus, aside from Big Lightning Daddy, you're probably familiar with the fact that he just loved, he just loved to lure and sexually assault young, hot, mortal women. Mm-hmm. He especially loved to do it in animal form. Aneta Alexandritis, the assistant professor of classical art and archaeology in the Department of History of Art and Visual Studies at Cornell, explains that there is no word for bestiality in ancient Greek. Hmm. But art from the time did suggest zoophilia, quote, a strong emotional bond between humans and animals that can also include sex acts. 
In the Paper, Bestiality and Bestial Rape in Greek Myth by J.E. Robson, they write, quote, A problem arises when we try to date the emergence of myths under discussion. Many of our sources are Hellenistic or Roman, and so it is possible that some bestial myths are late literary inventions. For those few myths which are well-documented in both archaic and classical sources, it would appear to be the rule, however, that their bestial versions receive their first telling in the latter era. That is to say, mention of animals in many stories appeared later. So the mythos of the myths evolved into a language of its own. That's fascinating. Plutarch wrote in Discourse on the Reason of Beasts, keep in mind this is this is during the time of ancient Greece. Right. Quote, very frequently and in many places, great outrages, disorders, and scandals against nature in the matter of this pleasure of love, for there are men who have loved she-goats, sows, and mares. As we continue on perhaps the most important detail of trying to uncover why the ancient Greeks were writing so many myths about Zeus in particular, but more than a few gods sexually assaulting women while in the form of animals. We also need to remember that quotes from this time and the surrounding times probably had political motivations. Mm, Right, absolutely. People may have been trying to paint a group of people or an individual in a bad light with works, uh, art, writing, and then that gets mixed up in the ancient archaeological dirt with history that's written in earnest. And then we have that, like, Zardoz paradox. Just because something exists in writing doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that it is true, valued, or accepted. Mm -hmm. It's worth noting that we have no reason to believe that people in ancient Greece would be any more likely to have relations with an animal than anyone today. That is to say, we have the internet. Mm -hmm. We've all heard about some interesting places on the internet. So they probably had their own thing going on back then. Yeah, I think it's also important to note that people today just have less exposure to animals than people in ancient Greek. I mean... There are people who can can today choose to have basically no exposure to any animals. We're not working on farms. We're not riding horses. We're not getting our supplies from our own animals. Many people choose not to have pets. Uh, you don't need to have pets in order to keep pests out of your house. Like there's just fewer interactions if you want there to be in a way that, that I don't think was as possible back then. That's a really good point. And if animal husbandry is an important part of your survival, there is kind of this uh, practicality to sex mm-hmm. that just – it just changes the ballgame. This is also pre-Christian. Morals were different. Yeah. Exactly. And also co- the way sex was discussed was different. You highlighted it really well in the Achilles and Patroclus episode too, how sex was just viewed very differently. Yeah. it Ancient Greek society – it, they weren't very moral about it. No, pre-Old Testament morals were different. And the Old Testament specifically did come in and stipulate things like, hey, don't let women be alone with livestock so you don't have to prove that they didn't have sex with animals. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. That shows not a fundamental fear of animals, but a fundamental fear of women. A fundamental fear of losing your women's value. Yes, there it is. Mm -hmm. You complete me. Oh. 
J.E. Robson also writes, quote, Greek men often saw beauty in animals, and girls were often spoken of in terms of worthy domestic beasts, as may be exemplified in Anacreon. Quote, Thracian filly, why do you look at me from the corner of your eye and flee pitilessly from me, supposing that I have no skill? Let me tell you, I could neatly put the bridle on you, and with the reins in my hand, wheel you round the turnpost of the race course. Instead, you graze in the meadows and frisk and frolic lightly, since you have no skilled horseman to ride you. End quote. That's about a woman? Yep. Oh my god. That's about a woman? No, but come on, like, that's not my favorite quote in the world. I really don't love it, but that sounds so much like how people will talk about women today in code. People still call women fillies and, like, I don't even, like, they're, like, I think I've heard women today called fillies. Yeah. I'm going to bridle you. You have no skilled horsemen to ride. You just need a strong man. Oh, my God. It's the whole manosphere thing. Like, Andrew Tate and all that absolute fucking bullshit, which, again, I guess, warning for how heated this episode's going to get. It's going to get heated. And we're just getting started. There is a positive or value-neutral side also to referring to people as animals. For example, gay men. They use phrases like bear or otter or chicken. And and those phrases are born of a need for LGBTQ plus people to identify themselves to one another while staying safe in a homophobic society. Uh, Yeah, I absolutely see the value in that. Um, And when it is within a community, it feels less of an intentional dehumanization and more of a safety measure. Yes, that's my point, though. Like, with consent... You can do things like that. Like, yes, if your partner is into that, wants to be bridled. There's a whole community for that. Like, let's just. Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm not against kink shaming. If that quote was like someone who like both of them are into like a horse kink, go off. That quote that you read, I read it as just a man grossly being like, mm, pretty lady, let me control you. But talking about her as though she's a horse. Did I interpret that correctly? I, how would I know, right? Right. Like, I wasn't there. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, there is the king community. And when we look at stories of Zeus, we have to understand that, yes, myths teach people how to behave, what kinds of goals to have. Myths are very valuable, uh, very ubiquitous. But also it is a story and can be used in a myriad of different ways. So we have porn on the internet talking about animals, and that is a perfectly safe way for people to engage in something that appeals to them. So when we look at stories where Zeus is an animal, his partner, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. obviously the sexual assault is absolute hot garbage, but they are stories. And because they do not exist, they have the potential to be safe ways for people to explore things that interest them. Is it likely that that's the only or even main way these stories were used? Mm, Yeah. But we do have to acknowledge it because it's important. Absolutely. Uh, So one of the the things about time, I think, that has really influenced how we look at these stories with Zeus was the Roman circus. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about ancient Greek because as far as we're concerned, that's where these stories, quote unquote, started. But first laid out. During the 6th century BCE, it was Julius Caesar who crafted the spectacle of the circus 
into the stuff of legend. So now we're in Roman society. Mm-hmm. And this circus was primarily a racetrack. And I do mean a literal racetrack. This yes. was a massive amphitheater. But it was also the host of the Roman games that honored Jupiter or mm-hmm. Zeus. Events hosted at the site included wild animal hunts, public executions and gladiator fights, some of which were exotically spectacular in the extreme, such as when Pompey organized a contest between a group of barbarian gladiators and 20 elephants, end quote. In that quote, they are not describing, uh, for example, the fact that the rape of Leda by Zeus was a subject of many, quote-unquote, shows and people, meaning slaves and these, quote-unquote, barbarians, which are others, you know, people Mm -hmm. who they deem not to have rights, were known to be put into the ring and harmed by trained animals. Yeah. We could do a whole episode on the Roman circus, the gladiators. Yeah, because it was also a political tool. You had your favorite color, like let's say green or blue is your team, but that was also your political alignment. And it was it caused a whole lot of chaos. And you know, there's a certain reason we use the word circus to represent chaos. And I think part of it stems from this original Roman circus. Right. And we're far enough down the line that even though these stories are born before the circus, the circus has an influence on how we understand the story's birth. Mm -hmm. So there are three categories for stories with Zeus, unwilling partners, and animals. One, God as an animal, the God being Zeus in this case, with Antiope, Zeus appears as a satyr. For Europa, he appears as a bull. Persephone is assaulted by Zeus as a snake. And the famous story of Leda and the swan. Two, the woman as an animal. With Metis, she is transformed, but nonetheless assaulted. And Taigate is transformed into a deer. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, they're both transformed. When he attacks Asteri, she is turned into a quail and he into an eagle. And then in his attack on Nemesis, she is a goose while he is a swan. Mm -hmm. Tracy and I have chosen the two stories about Zeus being terrible to women that I would say we reference the most and we're most interested in yeah. or maybe foundational for the two of us. Yeah, I would agree with that. So the story that I'm covering today is the abduction of Europa. And my kind of connection to this story dates all the way back to uh, when I was in high school. I took Latin class. and Yeah, she did. I, she was such a nerd. <laughs> I just took it because I thought it was interesting. And, you know, when you're in high school and you're in a language class, you have to choose a name, right? So I chose Europa as my name and learned the myth of Europa in that class. And it just always stuck with me. And so then I'm also a huge astronomy nerd. So, of course, Jupiter's moon Europa is my favorite. And then I spent years learning about it and researching it. So I just always had this emotional connection to the story of Europa, the idea of Europa. It's just always been a part of my life. Imagine being Europa and then having the moon getting named after you and be like, I have to orbit this guy forever. I know. I think about that with all of Jupiter's moons because it's Io, Ganymede, Europa. And you're like, really? You just continue to make them the asterisks in his story, don't you? But then also, <laughs> is it better to be named and recognized and then or, or not get that whole conversation? But we'll dive into it. The moon Europa is my favorite both because it looks super cool and has fascinating stuff going on. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love this episode. I got to talk about history, mythology, and science, okay? I'm, I'm living my best life. 
You really had the opportunity to say history, mystery, and mythology and didn't. I'm going to wake up at 3 a.m. in a cold sweat two months from now and remember that moment. You're going to wake up in a cold sweat five years from now and remember <laughs> this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about who Europa actually is as a character in mythology. Europa's earliest literary reference is in the Iliad, which is commonly dated to the 8th century BC, and it is from this ancient tale that we get the name of the continent of Europe. Europa herself is a Phoenician princess and mother of King Minos of Crete. Phoenicia was an ancient region along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean that corresponds to modern-day Lebanon with adjoining parts of modern Syria and Israel. It is believed that Europa hails from an Argive, as in from Argos, lineage, but ultimately descends from the princess Io, the mythical nymph loved by Zeus. Europa is generally said to be the daughter of Agnor, the Phoenician king of Tyre. However, who her mother was seems to be up for debate. The Syracusian poet Moschus describes her mother as Queen Telephassa, but elsewhere, her mother is Argiope. Other sources, such as the Iliad, claim that she is the daughter of Agnor's son, the sun-red phoenix. Ooh. However, it is generally agreed upon that she has two brothers, Cadmus, who is said to have brought the alphabet to mainland Greece, and Cilix. But there's also a third brother, also known as Phoenix, uh, mentioned as her sibling as well. So clearly there's a lot of ambiguity around the origins of this figure, but given that this myth is about 3,000 years old, I think we can let that pass. My favorite thing about these myths is that people get all tangled up in the family tree. Meanwhile, that's not really the, the bit in the myth. Oh, I know. Researching this myth, there are a lot of actual family trees laid out that I just didn't even get into. I was like, we're not breaking it down. And then, of course, you read, as researching this, you read versions of this myth over and over and over and over again to kind of try to figure out how you're going to compile it. Because one version will talk about... Uh, a saffron flower appearing and another version never mentions that at all but talks about zeus's horns glowing like they're gemstones and then another version doesn't mention that at all and you're like well where what is truth and what is canon and then that's the fun part of mythology is that you get to kind of play with the different periods of time as to what they thought was important to share willing and fable will probably go down on the hill that like canon is up for grabs yes Presuming you're still in the culture. It's an oral tradition. <laughs> exactly. So this is my version of just generally here is what the myth of Europa and Zeus is. Our story begins on a beautiful sunny day in Phoenicia where Europa and some of her helpers are out in the fields gathering flowers. Europa is the epitome of feminine grace, decorum, and beauty. She's frolicking out in the fields, being beautiful and perfect, and she walks <laughs> past her father's pasture of bulls. Among her father's bulls, she sees a new one, and it catches her eye. He's large, powerful, all white with horns that gleam like gems. Not seeing this for the obvious god disguised as an animal thing that it was, she decides to approach the beast. She walks up and begins to reach out to pet the animal, and he accepts this gesture, and seeing how docile the beast is, she proceeds to decorate him with all the flowers she just gathered. He responds so well to her actions that eventually he encourages the young woman to climb upon his back by bowing down before Europa and waiting for her to climb up on him. Charmed by this action and still questioning nothing, she has her helpers take her hands and assist her onto his back. She quickly finds herself seated upon the bull. 
I want to just say really quick, because I'm sitting here being so skeptical, like, oh, she's just going up to this bull and blah, blah, blah. The number of times that I've gone up to my horse and the other horses in the field and just been like, mm-hmm. oh, you're being so nice. Let's put some flowers in your mane. Right. Is not zero. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's... I'm all aboard for that. I think if you went and you saw this like unreal, amazing, gorgeous horse you've never seen before at all, suddenly in the field, and you're in ancient Greece, <laughs> might not be a horse is all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, but the rule is that the victim is not allowed to think ahead. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so... Here we are. Europa has climbed upon the back of the bull, and the creature starts walking around very slowly at first, meandering, and then all of a sudden he sprints as fast as he can move. Europa just holds on for dear life as the bull runs them both towards the sea, and to her shock, he did not stop at the water's edge, but instead leapt into the ocean, flying for a long moment before landing in the water. He begins swimming with the princess on his back, and he swims all the way to the island of Crete before he finally stops and deposits them both on the edge of the shore. Again, I'm sorry, Europa, but that was your moment to dismount. Unless this is like a sticky Kelpie situation, it's not that difficult to get off an animal that's swimming. I wonder how far out he got, though, because it seems like based on the way it talks about him, some versions describe him as flying and like trying to fly and then realizing (laughs) he's too heavy and just flopping into the water. And others just say he swam really fast. Like, I think by the time there was even an ability to kind of let go. Right. It was like too late. And we don't even know if she could swim. Maybe she couldn't swim. Just to be clear, I'm I'm not trying to victim blame. I just mean, like, I'm trying to work my way out yeah. of this as if I'm in the story. <laughs> Absolutely. The way we're like, well, it could never be me. I would have done this or this. Or I, you know, it's it's that anxiety woman brain of, like, how would I get out of this situation? Exactly. Oh, yeah. It's true crime. <laughs> true crime, baby. But here we are in the story of Europa. They just swam to the island of Crete. They get on the shore and Zeus transforms from a bull into his grand self and reveals that he is actually Zeus, king of the gods. So... Now they're on the island of Crete and Zeus either seduces or sexually assaults Europa and the text in ancient Greek writings rarely differentiates between the two so we don't know the actual answer there. He declares her to be the first queen of Crete and together they have three children, Minos, the future king of Gnosis, and namesake of the Minotaur, Radamanthus, who would end up becoming one of the judges of the underworld, and in a slightly later tradition, the great warrior and ally of Troy, Sarpedon. Minos comes by the bull lineage, honestly, huh? He does. Isn't that interesting? He, yeah. he does. His wife, Pasiphae. Yes, had relations with the bull and then created the, the Minotaur. Minotaur. <laughs> the, yeah. the Minotaur of great fame. And that was all through this lineage. Well, I have you stopped because I keep doing this to you. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Love I love it. Do you it think that the ancient Greek writings rarely differentiate between the two because there was no differentiation with the men's understanding in the scenario? Or do you think that's just how it happened or it's translated? What just your I think there wasn't a word for rape. I think um we had this conversation, you know, in our society we had to get comfortable with the idea of date rape. We had to get comfortable with the idea of describing a broader range of actions as sexual assault and our understanding of what it means to have bodily autonomy. So I think in these writings, it probably was, you know, the two of them lay together or 
whatever the phrasing is, where it just has the intent of both parties is irrelevant in the description of the physical action. We also know that in ancient Greece, for a woman to have sex out of wedlock or before marriage was was very bad, even if she was sexually assaulted, she was looked down upon. Mm -hmm. The fact that her morals are wrapped up into that, not just the idea that something happened to her, she was forced, does belie an understanding of sexual assault that puts more responsibility on the person being assaulted. Yes. So I I agree with everything you're saying. I just think there wasn't – I think there was never intended to be a differentiation between the two. Mm-hmm. But no matter what happened – Eventually, as he Zeus does, he loves him, he leaves him. He left Europa with four gifts upon his departure. The first was a necklace made by Hephaestus. The next was a bronze automaton guard named Talos. The third was the hound Lelaps, who never failed to catch his quarry. And finally, he gifted her a javelin that never missed. I didn't realize the tie-in with so many other stories. Yup. Isn't that – I didn't even realize that either, and I've known about this myth forever. Oh. Laylaps and the fox being my favorite. Mm-hmm. And it ties into Europa. And keep in mind, Europa is a Phoenician princess brought to the island of Crete. So we're going to dive into that because it's sort of two different cultures with even some differences in their pantheons merging. But Europa is currently missing. She's on Crete. She's – had her children, uh, and her father's trying to find her. So Agnor discovers his daughter's disappearance, and he sends his three sons off to go bring her home. These were Phoenix, Silix, and Cadmus, and although they never did find their sister, they did found, at least in mythology, new colonies in Phoenicia, Cilicia, and Boeotian Thebes, respectively, and thus became the founding fathers of those people. Having given birth to three sons by Zeus, Europa then married King Asterios, the name of this king being also the name of the Minotaur and an epithet of Zeus, which was likely derived from the name Ashtar or Ashtarte, who is a Phoenician goddess. Wow. Yeah. Zeus later recreated the shape of the white bull in the stars, which is now known as the constellation Taurus. And since Hera never found out about the affair between Zeus and Europa, there are no stories of her attempting to get revenge upon the other woman. This is a very rare story for Zeus in which there can be an argument because the writing is so unclear that there was real connection or love between Zeus and Europa, and there are no negative consequences for her affair with Zeus. Yeah, the gifts thing is intriguing. Mm-hmm. So I found two prevailing theories regarding the myth of Europa and where it came from. The first is that this story is meant to blend the Phoenician pantheon with the Greek pantheon. That's why the origin story is most likely connected to Astarte in the Phoenician and Canaanite myths. In the 2nd century AD, in the territory of Phoenician Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon, the Hellenistic satirist Lucian of Samosota was informed that the Temple of Ashtarte was also sacred to Europa, and he wrote, quote, There is likewise in Phoenicia a temple of great size owned by the Sidonians. They call it the Temple of Ashtarte, but according to the story of one of the priests, this temple is sacred to Europa, the sister of Cadmus. She was the daughter of Agnor, and on her disappearance from Earth, the Phoenicians honored her with a temple and told a sacred legend about her, how that Zeus was enamored of her for her beauty and changing his form into that of a bull, carried her off into Crete. The legend I heard from other Phoenicians as well, and the coinage current among the Sidonians bears upon it the effigy of Europa sitting upon a bull of Zeus, end quote. 
Wikipedia explains this quote by stating that there were two competing myths relating to how Europa came into the Hellenic world, but they agreed that she came to Crete, where the sacred bull was paramount. In the more familiar telling, she was seduced by the god Zeus in the form of a bull, who breathed from his mouth a saffron crocus and carried her away to Crete on his back to be welcomed by Asterion. However, Herodotus tells a different version in which Europa was just kidnapped by Cretans, not Zeus, who likewise were said to have taken her to Crete. While Europa does not seem to be venerated directly in cult anywhere in classical Greece, it was found in the 2nd century AD at Labadea in Boeotia that Europa was used as the epithet or byname of Demeter. Quote, Demeter, who they surname Europa and say was the nurse of Trophonios, end quote. Another example was, there is also a sanctuary of Demeter Europa, the nurse of Trophonios. This refers to a myth about Demeter and Trophonios, but includes the epithet of Europa, suggesting that this myth originates from a blend of Phoenician and Greek mythology. Oh, that story gets real interesting if yeah. Europa is Demeter. It's like how some of the gods got different epithets, which were kind of the different facets of the jewels, and one of her epithets was Demeter Europa. Trace, define epithets for someone who's not familiar. I don't know that we throw that word around as much. Yeah. And it's a tough word to describe because I, I tried to put a definition in here and you want to know what the real definition of the word epithet is? Yeah. A word that describes another word. Great. So basically in this context, it uh, a byname is also another good way to describe it. It's it's a signifier. So it's I think of it as it's the version of Demeter. Demeter mm -hmm. Europa. Um, if you're big in online fandom, you might see um, a sort of weird modern day equivalent to this of the exclamation point in front of a character's name where it's like modern exclamation point, King Arthur. Um, and that's a way to describe a, a version of the character that you know, but in a slightly different way. I am not big into online fandom, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I bring, I bring the weird in. I bring the weird, you bring the death. I bring the nerd you bring the skulls. Okay. Great. <laughs> I feel like that's where it comes down to. Amazing. <laughs> Deal. Great. I want nothing more in my whole life. You complete me. Be my antidote. <laughs> I still think about be my antidote. And some of our patrons called it out and I got all emotional all over again. Five years, wake up in a cold sweat. I could have said history, mystery, mythology. I could have said history, mystery, and mythology and I didn't. All right, so... <laughs> In regards to the story, I personally find it really interesting that Zeus takes Europa back to Crete, which is the island he was raised on. I don't have an explanation for it. I, I don't know what the significance is there, but I'm really curious. Was it meant to signify the importance of Crete or the connection between Crete and Phoenicia? Was it meant to really establish Zeus's birth place as a really strong way to say this is our story now, even though it's from a different area? I'm not sure, but I find it really interesting. Yeah, I wonder if it's just like, you know, when you like someone and you bring them home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of what it feels like. So, Rowan, I have two different pieces of art I want to show you because the story is obviously so old. I wanted to take a piece from ancient times and then also a piece m more modern, not super modern. There's art being done of the story of Europa Still to this day, I found stuff online from the 20s, the 40s, recent modern art. It's something we love to tell over and over again. But the first image I have here for you is a terracotta figurine from Athens from around 460 to 480 BC. This figure 
has nothing in the image to suggest scale, but it looks fairly small. It is a tannish white with, it looks like maybe parts of a glaze or the coloring worn off or worn mm -hmm. down. The figurine itself is kind of smushy in the way that it's all the details have been flattened by time. So everything's yeah. a little soft. There's a woman, her hair is up. She's wearing robes. Mm -hmm. She's reclining on a bull, which is yeah. interesting. Almost like you would a chaise long. Yes. Yeah. You see um, different time periods depict her very differently. Sometimes she's lounging on the bull as a uh, side saddle became more popular. It was very she often. She is riding her. side saddle. Mm-hmm. But then at other times, it was really popular to depict her fully striding the bull. And she's not looking forward. She's looking back. And looking back could show like, oh, no, I'm being pulled away. But in this, because she's looking down and back, it just looks kind of casual almost. Yeah. Like, this is just what I'm doing. And the bull has – the legs are all carved. But to support the figurine, there's kind of like earth coming up to it. It looks like he's laying stable. down too. Yeah. It's really giving me like a – Mechanical bull in a bar <laughs> energy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the next painting is Rembrandt. So yeah. it's it's all specificity. Uh, it's got the classical 1600s, early 1600s coloring. So mm -hmm. everything's those warm, dark jewel tones. We've got orange-based reds, uh, yellow-based greens. The skin on all the people is very, very pale according to what they found beautiful, but also golden. Mm -hmm. Europa is on the bull, this time side saddle, arms thrown into its mane onto its head, but looking back like, oh no, mm -hmm. what's happening? And her hair is blowing in the breeze and she's got this really intense, it looks almost like medieval times, times, times kind of dress. Yeah. And the bull is striding out into the ocean on the shore, there's, you know, her family or her handmaidens, I guess. I think it might be yeah, the handmaidens, the, the quote-unquote helpers. One is throwing her hands into the air like, quel dommage, what will we do? She looks like with her one leg up, she's almost having a temper tantrum. Yeah. Like she's about to stomp her foot. There are horses behind them and a cart, which is interesting because it's almost as if, you know, if they were on land – these people would be able to pursue the bull. Right. And then back in the distance is the city, which in some places looks like it might need a little assistance. Yeah. It's like it's kind of falling apart. But neither of these are depicted like, oh, no, the bull. Poor Europa. Oh, yeah. There, and there are a few. Um, you know, this one is called the abduction of Europa. M most of the time it's called the rape of Europa when it's depicted in art. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting. There was one from the 1700s, so kind of in the Rococo Marie Antoinette period, and Europa's clothing much more reflects that. There was one from the 1500s that was very much, um, you know, she's very barely clothed at all. And in that one, aggressively fighting the idea of being captured in a way that is less commonly pictured. Um, mm. It was took all my energy not to put like 15 photos in here just so we could have a fun comparison, but this is an audio medium. So if you're interested in the art around Europa, go Google it. There's plenty. I had the same thing happen with my story. Yeah. You and I love art. We do. We do. <laughs> Jinx, so you owe me a matcha. <laughs> I owe you so many matchas because you keep coming up with bets and then winning them. 
Y'all, I sound like a monster. Um, I'm not I well, I am a monster, but not in this way, not in real life. I don't usually <laughs> make Tracy pay up. No, 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 no. She actually usually refuses when I try to pay up. She's like, I didn't mean it, it wasn't real. <laughs> it was only for the goof. Yeah. I'm like, no, no the actions of your consequences. <laughs> uh oh. Consequences of your actions? I like the actions of your I like consequences. the actions of your, you know, we're gonna keep that. We're leaving that in. That's just <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about why Europe is named after Europa. According to Greek reporter, the first recorded usage of Europe as a geographic term is in Homer's hymn to Delian Apollo in reference to the western shore of the Aegean Sea. Additionally, the Greek philosopher Anaximander and the geographer Hecateus used it as a name for a region of the known world for the first time in the 6th century BCE. As with other Greco-Roman myths, the connection between mythological figures and their impact on the real world is often seen through children, descendants, and other family members. While Europa herself does not seem to have made it into the continental mainland, her brother Cadmus, or Cadmus, did, and there, in memory of their hometown, he founded a Greek version of the hundred-gated Egyptian city of Thebes, although his rendition only had seven gates. Lame. I know. Come on, Cadmus. You're 93 gates short. It might be an intentional ironic twist that he never found his sister Europa, but he does find her, quote unquote, Europa or Europe the continent. The mythology makes the effort to locate Cadmos not just in Greece, but further inland and northward toward Illyria, where later misadventures end him up. The word Europe is derived from the Greek word eurus, meaning wide, and ops, meaning face. But it's unknown whether the ancient Greeks thus named Europe after the facial features of the people they noticed inhabiting it, or of the figure of Europa. Perhaps at the end, it was a bit of both. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I, wa I was trying to find a clear answer because, you know, it's... You'd think there'd be a really clear reason why we have one of seven continents named after a mythological figure, but... People are kind of like, man, I don't know. Could be a few things. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's where we talk about science. Europa is a moon of Jupiter, and it's about 90% the size of Earth's moon. So if we replaced our moon with Europa, it would appear roughly the same size in the sky as our moon, but much, much brighter because its surface is made of water ice, so it reflects 5.5 times the sunlight than our moon does. Hold up. Did you say water ice? Yes. Can we please quickly... <laughs> oh, are we doing the water ice Italian ice thing? Yes. Because <laughs> I'm stuck out here on the West Coast, and when I say water ice, people get weird. I'm like, mm, isn't ice made of water? Shut up. It's just what it's called, okay? It's what it's called. It's water ice. Just so everyone knows, water ice is Italian ice or flavored ice. Yeah. And the best place to get it is Rita's. I like a local spot near us. That's I kind of out in the boondocks. That's amazing. We just we just have Rita's. I say the best place to get it is Rita's. It's the only place. Trace, by out near us, I mean out near you and I. Like, and I'm, when I am <gasps> with you. <laughs> I thought you meant in L.A. Game changer. There's no water ice in L.A. I mean, l listen, I'm not trying to say that L.A. doesn't have flavor ice. It does. It has flavored ice, but it's not the same. Mm. <laughs> okay, all right. So <laughs> Great, thanks everyone. Back to space. <laughs> because Europa's orbit is elliptical, which means it's slightly stretched out from circular, its distance from Jupiter varies, and the moon's near side feels Jupiter's gravity more strongly than its far side. 
The magnitude of this difference changes as Europa orbits, creating tides that stretch and relax the moon's surface. Mm. Flexing from the tides likely creates the moon's surface fractures. If Europa's ocean exists, the tidal heating could also lead to volcanic or hydrothermal activity on the seafloor, supplying nutrients that could make the ocean suitable for living things. That's the big thing with Europa. It could have, like, microbial life on it. So NASA's jumping into it. I have a picture here that I'll share with everyone from the Europa Clipper website on NASA. It says, in 2024, the journey begins. Clipper is being crafted with one overarching goal, determine if Europa harbors conditions suitable for life. NASA's Europa Clipper spacecraft will perform dozens of close flybys of Jupiter's moon Europa, gathering detailed measurements to investigate whether the moon could have conditions suitable for life. Europa Clipper is not a life detection mission. Its main science goal is to determine whether there are places below Europa's surface that could support life. The spacecraft in orbit around Jupiter will make nearly 50 flybys of Europa at closest approach altitudes as low as 16 miles or 25 kilometers above the surface, soaring over a different location during each flyby to scan nearly the entire moon. Europa Clipper will launch on October 2024 and will follow a Mars-Earth gravity assist, MEGA, trajectory. The spacecraft will travel for five and a half years and arrive at Jupiter in April of 2030. And then below, I have a picture, if you've never seen it, of Europa, the moon itself of Jupiter, because it's one of my favorites. It's such a cool-looking moon. I can't believe I forgot about that knowing you. That's so cool. And it was so much cooler before looking for places that life could exist was kind of like a necessity Mm because we're breaking everything. Mm -hmm. Now it's a little dystopian. Yeah, and this isn't to suggest we could live on Europa. It's more of... Could we find microbial life the same way we find in geothermal vents at the bottom of our ocean that we didn't think could possibly ever exist? Right. And it's just, you know, is it's answering the question, is it possible for any planet other than our own to support life? And what would cause it? And where did it come from? Did microbes come onto our planet from an asteroid and that's how we got life? Is it something inherent to the nature of the actual planet where does it come from so that's part of like all the things that they're exploring is like what is happening here and could it support life it's buck wild do you want to describe the image here of europa yeah she's a hottie with a celestial body um (laughs) (laughs) uh in this image we're getting like the half like when you get uh, the moon is half full kind of the rest Mm -hmm. is in shadow uh, the surface has like a whitish, grayish, tan modeling mm-hmm. to it. And then there are stripes and streaks and splatters going across it that are uh, soft, rusty orange. Mm-hmm. It looks almost like bone when you have yeah. drier, older bone and it has those fissures in it. I think it looks so cool. And that's when I was mentioning earlier the cracks from the ebb and flow of the tides. Mm-hmm. That's cracking through that ice on the surface. The cracks look like when a child scribbles on the walls when they get a hold of a crayon. Yeah, (laughs) it really does. (laughs) And the cool thing about this image is it it just looks so solid and dense. Mm -hmm. You know when you look at some photos of of celestial bodies and they look ephemeral, like you could just stick your hand through them? Yes. Which isn't to say nothing about whether they are mostly gas or mostly Mm -hmm. whatever. Looking at Europa, though, looks solid. Yeah. Like, if I was there, I I would be fine. I could step on it. 
It does. That, it does look that way. That's the trick of the image and kind of how my brain is eager to interpret it. Yeah. I, for a long time, uh, this is just a cute behind the scenes curtain thing. I, I've, like, my friends and family know how much I've always loved Europa and astronomy and the story. So Rowan used to sign all her letters to me instead of saying, I love you to the moon and back. I love you to Europa and back. I do. Yeah. I also have another friend who embroidered a picture of Europa for me, like learned to embroider and then did her little embroidery of Europa. And as soon as I opened up, I was like, is this Europa? It's really we love sweet. Europa. Yeah. Poor so girl. for my story this week, Rowan and I talked about this. Actually, Rowan, you gave me the idea to do this. Gave me idea slash permission. Like I, as soon as you suggested it, it was like, oh, I've never wanted anything more. So uh, I, it wasn't my idea. You've been looking for an excuse to do this exactly. in another episode for a minute. Right. Which is why I say permission, quote unquote, is like, hey, this could be fun. So I returned to my great love of sapphic poetry and I wrote a poem in sapphic stanza about the story of Europa. Because get wrecked, Zeus. Go fuck yourself, Zeus. Yeah. The wide field of flowers stretched out before me. Vibrant colors spread across the earth and ground, but their scent heavy on the wind and so fresh left me wanting more. But I did not know that I was being watched. I thought the only beauty was around me, but to him I was the most vibrant flower, ready to be plucked. He waited in the field hidden as a bull, but I knew him the moment that I saw him. Such beauty and power was no mortal thing. No, I saw a god, and I realized that he was waiting for me. But alas, I could not turn away from him. A mortal woman cannot refuse a god. So I stepped forward. We both knew that my fate was no longer mine. I was powerless to do anything else. Gods can play with us mortals like we are toys. And we say thank you. Thank you for taking me away from my home. Thank you for taking full control of my life. Thank you for using me like I am nothing. Thank you for leaving. Now I have been enshrined in history as nothing more than a footnote in his story. The woman who climbed on the back of a bull. Europa the Queen. Oh, gosh, you captured that that energy of like when something bad happens to you and you try to take ownership of it and you're like, mm -hmm. no, 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 I know it's bad, but like I chose this or I set myself up for this and that way of trying to reclaim your mm -hmm. own agency. Oh, yeah, that describes it perfectly because – I thought so much about the fact that let's say let's say she did know because in my story I joked I was like knowing nothing more she stepped onto his back. I don't think it would have mattered if she did or didn't know it was Zeus. If you see that gleaming animal and you ignore him, you could probably endure his wrath. So then it's your thought is okay. Well, I don't want to have to endure his wrath, so I'll walk up to him. And then you walk up to him and he bows before you to get on his back. What are you going to do? Like I, I think he had so much power in that situation. That whether she knew or didn't know it was Zeus as a bull is irrelevant to what was going to happen to her and what he wanted. It's a really great allegory for power imbalances in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Yes. The closest one-to-one -one I can think of of someone like ignoring 
a god in a similar scenario was Minos asking for a sacrifice, getting the sacred bull, then not sacrificing it. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, gods are like, oh, you didn't do what you promised. Now your wife is attracted to this bull, blah, 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 the Minotaur. Like, you can push back, but how far are you going to get? Right. And as a woman, you have even less power. And so that was what I wanted to capture in this, of that feeling of, I knew what was going to happen. I didn't have a choice. And then you made me say thank you. And I was supposed to be grateful. And I think that is something we see a lot in these stories that I want to touch on because exactly like you said, I wanted to give her a little bit of power back in that poem and say, I didn't have a choice in my story and I'm a footnote in his, but I am still me and I still matter. The idea of being a footnote in someone else's story is so intriguing because that can stay irrelevant until someone's telling the story and the telling is harmful to you. Mm -hmm. Like if that's a private detail between two people, okay, then the audience widens and then it widens and suddenly you have those questions we're always asking, who is telling the story? Why are they telling the story? Who are they telling it to? And being a footnote and having no agency and no backstory and no drive matters. Mm -hmm. And so often in these tales of Zeus assaulting women, the women are, as I say with nymphs, like effectively blow-up dolls. Yeah. Thank you for doing sapphic verse. It feels so right. I love doing it. It's such a fun challenge. Yeah, it feels so good that Sappho would be examining that. Just... I feel like you really captured what I I wanted. <laughs> so thank you. It feels yeah. like a gift. Oh, it was so much fun. But now I'm handing the reins over to you. It is your turn. What story do you have today? Yeah. Uh, along with Europa, the myth of Leda and the Swan is probably one of the most widely known stories of Zeus being an absolute monster. Mm-hmm. Likely because people have been creating art depicting Leda copulating with the swan for centuries. And I will say subject matter being value neutral, many of the paintings and sculptures depicting this story are exceedingly well rendered, making it more likely that that work would be exhibited to a wider audience. Right. We'll get into that a little bit more. In this story, Zeus takes a liking to Leda famously beautiful as she was, Mm -hmm. and our friend J.E. Robson says, quote, In versions of the myth from classical times and beyond, Zeus rapes Leda in the form of a swan. There's conflict amongst the sources as to the wellspring of the union. In Homer, Leda is said to bear Castor and Polydeuces to Tyndareus, but Helen is said to be Zeus's daughter. In Homeric hymns, the Dioscuri are said to be Zeus's offspring. In Pindar, Polydeuces is Zeus's son, where Castor is Tyndareus's. In Apollodorus, she is said to bear Polydeuces and Helen to Zeus, and Castor and Clymnestra to Tyndareus. In Euripides, Leda is also the mother of Phoebe. Apollodorus also cites a version of the myth in which Leda merely finds and hatches an egg, previously laid by Nemesis. End quote. All of this is to say... The common story is Leda, queen of Sparta and wife of Tyndareus, is raped by Zeus in the form of a swan while she bathes in a river in the wild. The same day, she has sex with her husband. Usually, her offspring are the twins Helen of Helen of Troy Mm -hmm. fame 
and Clytemnestra, and then Castor and Pollux. And then due to her relations with the two men, Helen and Pollux are the children of the god Zeus, and Clytemnestra and Castor are mortals. Pollux later asks Zeus to share his immortality with his twin, which Zeus grants. In life, they were known as the Dioscuri, and later Zeus turned into the constellation Gemini. Great. Mm-hmm. I want to acknowledge why I chose the world's most boring quote to talk about this story because I am very excited about it. I didn't think co- it was very boring. I'm into it. I just don't care about genealogy, really. I don't. Right. I don't. But there are a couple things that this quote is illustrating. One, it shows us that this story was ubiquitous enough within ancient Grecian culture that it was different from one telling to the next. Mm-hmm. Two, it illustrates the fact that in ancient Greece, women needed to have children. That was the important thing that they did. So yes. Lita having these children, which are in other myths, is kind of the closest a woman could get to becoming heroic. Hmm. Yeah. And then lastly, it also goes to show that while the offspring is interesting, it's a it's a jumping off point for other stories. Mm-hmm. The thing, the little detail that's in all of these tellings is that Lita's a hottie and mm-hmm. Zeus rapes her. And that doesn't change. Now, I say rape, and we could get into what you mentioned, like, was Lita into the swan? But 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 it's it's everything that you already said. So I don't mm-hmm. feel like we need to dive into that. I'm gonna keep saying rape because as this story has become more widely known throughout the centuries, that's that's really our understanding of it now. And when I look at these stories of Zeus and the horrible ways he treats mortal women, I I'm always really interested in the fact like. Is the sexual assault detail not noteworthy? Or if it's noteworthy, does the kind of lustiness of sex and intrigue overshadow that? Right. Is there a reason to tell a story about a god raping a woman over and over again throughout time? Who's telling the story? Why are they telling the story? Who are they telling it to? So to discuss this, because this is what I'm interested in with Mm -hmm. Lita and the Swan. We need to explore some of the roles that men and women had in ancient Greek society going back to the rituals that were associated with puberty. There are differences from one city-state to the next, but many portions of the culture practice similar versions of adulthood rituals. Okay. Typically, when a boy came of age, he would be taken out into the wilds. The wilds could be different from one region to the next, also Mm -hmm. depending on how rural things are. And then older men would have the boy perform various rituals involving cross-dressing and hunting. Mm. The idea being get rid of any past identity that wouldn't conform to the state's idea and what they need from manhood. Okay. So a boy's long hair might be cut. They may be dressed femininely or uh, be made to be naked before their transition. And then finally, they would participate in the hunt. And that affirmed not only their place in society, but it did it by affirming their place in the animal kingdom. Okay, yeah. In these rituals, there is kind of a where you start and 
othering transitional phase and then a where we want you to end up. Mm -hmm. When examining art, academics have noted the similarities between male use posture and dress on vases where they're hunting prey and pursuing women. Hunters may also have abstained from sex with the purposes of raising hormones and aggression. Mm. And the distinction between killing a hunted animal or sexually assaulting a woman may have been pretty negligible. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense based on the description so far, absolutely. So then when a boy went through the ritual, he would be granted citizens' rights. He was a man now. As I mentioned before, there's no citizens' rights for women. Right. But girls did have their own rituals. There are stories of girls becoming attendants to the goddess Artemis, and in their stay in temples in the surrounding areas, they would hold events like races, where the priests and priestesses would dress in animal masks and clothing or naked, depending on, like, their age and kind of what they were up to in this ritual. And then the girls would be chased. Oh, by people dressed as animals. And with them dressed as animals as well, or depending on the ritual, like, some combination. Okay, The rituals for girls were all based in when they started their period Mm -hmm. because that's when you become a woman. And now that you've had your period, you can become pregnant out of wedlock, which is in direct conflict with the social mores of the culture, not unlike kind of the unpredictable mating of animals. So we're Mm. getting this, this tying of women to animals. Yes. And the way women are feared to the wildness of an animal. Um, if you'll recall the maenads, when uh, Spencer and I talked about Orpheus and Eurydice, these mm-hmm. wild women that dressed in leopard skins and traveled across the countryside. Right, right. And like I mentioned before, if sexual assault is also the fault of the victim, getting pregnant out of wedlock, even from sexual assault, was the fault of the woman. Right. And marriage was considered the final stage of, quote, the taming process, keeping her from, quote, sexual abandonment and, quote, breaking her in. Oh, my God. As an acceptable member of male-dominated society. Right, because she served her purpose now. She is connected to a man, useful to a man, and able to produce offspring for him, which is her ultimate goal in life. Yep. Someday we should talk about Sparta and the way they treated women. It's... Not a great culture for many reasons, but it is interesting how they approach some of these things differently. Although producing perfect Spartans was also the main goal of women. Early eugenics. J.E. Robson, who I continue to quote because their paper was insanely good, says, quote, Rape can be viewed as a mythical embodiment of the male's capacity for the defense of the city-state. These myths of bestiality help to uphold and define the order and institution of the polis, city, and the social rule of the male as superior to that of the female, in that he is the female's subjugator. Union with a god means social success for a woman, as her children will be heroic. Mm -hmm. The results for the assault vary for the women within these myths, usually based on how they behaved during their attack. Yeah. A girl who tries to resist will stay in or be put into a new metamorphosed state, unable to rejoin society. Mm-hmm. So she could be turned into a tree or an island. Though an incident like rape would have 
a devastating result for a woman if she were harmed by a mortal man, the fact that her attacker was a god seems to save her from being a victim of scrutiny. Mm. Which is this intriguing catch-22. Right. I mean, you see it with Europa. She marries a king after her time with Zeus. And I read a lot about how, you know, these girls were married fairly young. Mm -hmm. So experts are questioning, you know, these stories, which are told to girls for from the time they were children, are they teaching these girls, you know, when the powerful man comes upon you, be ready, but also behave accordingly. This is a god, valuable, mm-hmm. uh, se- uh, having sex, luring, seducing a mortal woman. When your husband, your god, right. does this to you, behave accordingly. I think that's completely the approach. I I think a lot of these stories are talking about the virtues of the docile woman. Absolutely. Yeah, we have the, you know, stay within civilization, girls. The wild is the place where you might be harmed. Don't be alone. Uh, You should submit to sex because resisting a man might dramatically change your situation. Mm -hmm. Removal from society. What happens if your marriage falls apart? How are you devalued? And also, it's not going to work anyway. Like you right. talked about with Europa. Right. When someone has so much power over you that that they can take literally anything they want, there's a moment of you can resist, but what is it going to get you if their outcome is the only outcome? And then, of course, your position in society is beneath a man's full stop. Mm-hmm. It is your responsibility to not only conform to social mores, but to cater to the men around you. Yeah. And – I've been I've been talking about this with a lot of my friends who are men because it, I can only come at this from the perspective of a woman, right? right? Same, clearly. Yep. And it this listen, Lita after she's sexually assaulted and has her kids, the story's kind of over. Like mm-hmm. that's really it for her. She served her purpose. And Unlike Europa, where she kind of has this life after the story, at least mm-hmm. a little bit, mm-hmm. Lita's all about the sexiness of her and the swan. Right. But seeing this story and others makes me wonder about how men and women were encouraged to approach attraction and lust. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing in my own life having male friends that are often very good men. And I don't mean good man, like trademark and all the baggage it comes with, just like good people yeah, who are also trying to unpack their internalized misogyny hmm. and understanding that a human being existing is not permission to make your attraction their problem. Yes. Yes, absolutely. The same way that you... I guess I I think a lot of times, too, a lot of emotions that you're experiencing, let's say you're having a really hard day, another person being in the room is not an excuse to take it out on them. Like, Mm -hmm. you have no right to force your feelings onto other people. That's not to say you should not share your feelings or or have communication, but to force your feelings onto someone else because you feel entitled to that experience isn't okay. Sage uh, made a joke the other day. It was so good while we were playing D&D. I forget what started it, but she was like, I'm not flirting. I'm just existing while hot. (laughs) It was so good. That's amazing. 
it that feels particularly apt for this because these women are supposed to be the pinnacle of beauty. Mm-hmm. And if you're a man and it is valuable for you to have sex with a lot of women, that is a social currency, and the value increases the more beautiful the women are, mm-hmm. then the converse is if you're a woman, how many men can you attract? That is your social currency. And if your safety is reliant upon that, not only do you need it, but you are forced to convince yourself that you want it. Mm -hmm. And then it's a dangerous balance because it's how many can you attract, but for them, it's how many can they sleep with. And if you sleep with them, then your value is decreased. And in ancient Greek society, that doesn't just exist for men and women. That exists in relationships between men and men, too. Right. It was very, very complicated in the way that it is now. If you're sitting there like, this kind of just sounds like now, yes. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> because Lita and the swan can be really just summed up into like Zeus thought she was hot, Zeus turned into a swan, <laughs> the end, like they had sex about it. Right. And then you can unpack whether it was consensual or non-consensual – I'm just so interested in why this story was so often told. Right. Why is it so ubiquitous? Even today, you, Hosier just released a song called Swan Upon Lita. Like, clearly this is still in the cultural zeitgeist. So, thank you for setting me up. I want to talk about that a little bit. Yes. I found an article that was just like 45 paintings of mm-hmm. Lita and the Swan throughout the ages. I didn't pull a single one of them because while they're very interesting to look at and I quite like a lot of them, like what what's the description here on a podcast, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> For all the really intriguing ones, you know, it's not not just a hot girl who's naked in the woods with a swan nearby. Like the the ones where the artists were like, I am pa- I am painting this mm-hmm. in process. Let's unpack that. Why was Lita and this one like the myth to paint forever? We've got Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Ghirlandaio, Rubens, Correggio, all the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> and then moving forward in time, we have Boucher, Picot, Delacroix, Moreau, Cezanne, Matisse, Dali, Saitwambly. Even Yeats was like, let me just write a, a poem about this. That's <laughs> a really graphic. Oh, my God. So Why? Artfix Daily writes, it took until the Middle Ages and the Renaissance for Lita to really gain traction. During this period, the church had a remarkable influence over the art that was being created. Certainly, the church and other religious figures were the greatest patrons of the arts, and as a result, many of the works that were being painted used biblical tales and figures as their subjects. Mm -hmm. However... The Renaissance was also an age of enlightenment when humanism began to emerge alongside great strides in science and philosophy. Artists had a wish to explore deeper themes in their art, sexuality being one of them. Due to the influence of the church, human sexuality could not be explicitly portrayed. As a result, Lita's union with not a man, but a swan became a highly popular way to explore human sexuality without angering religious sensibilities. This may seem entirely backwards to us today. Certainly, one would think bestiality is a greater sin than human sexuality. Yet, within the strictures of 16th century Italy, Lita's seduction by her swan lover was the more acceptable subject, end quote. That's insane. Um, That, you you know, couldn't see it, but my jaw dropped 
the idea that um, if you want to explore sexuality, you have to tell the story of Leda and Zeus with the swan. With Europa, it makes sense why it was such a popular subject to paint because European painters were really passionate about their namesake and exploring the myth of where they came from, the name of Europe and all of that. With Lita, I was wondering what the reason would be, and I am so genuinely shocked to learn that it's because it was more acceptable to paint bestiality than it was to paint sexuality with two humans. Yeah, I'm not I'm not painting a sexy painting. I'm just depicting a myth. I'm just telling a famous story. Wild. So the subject fell out of favor until the neoclassical artists of the 19th century came along and they were fawning over Renaissance art. You and I have talked about this mm-hmm. a fair amount. It's worth saying a lot of these paintings are very sexy. Like, Lita looks amazing. She's mm-hmm. rolling up as the most beautiful version of a woman according to the societal norm at the time of the painting. Oh, yeah. And some of them are buckwild weird. And some of them, she's just a hot lady with a swan kind of wrapped near her. It, It is... To me, a lot of them have similar energy to when you have, like, a woman and a snake wrapping around her. Yes. You're trying to express a woman's desire using that, like, animal description. It's very complicated. It is. It is really – it's really complex and – um, I mean, you kind of see a similar thing in the Europa paintings in that some of them are very serious. The one I showed of Rembrandt, like that was a pretty serious just here's a painting of Europa. But there are others where it's like, oh, this is our excuse to draw a, a naked woman veiled in some thin fabric striding upon a bowl. And I'm sure the same thing with Lita, where it was a, a, a way to get around restrictions and explore things that you wanted to explore especially with the idea of painting the most beautiful woman you could possibly think of. And then we get further down the line, an artist like Cy Twombly, he's not drawn a naked woman. That's not Cy Twombly. He's all scribbles, which I don't even mean to say like his skill. He just is a scribbler. That's his vibe. But when you look at his paintings, he is clearly exploring the violence of the action. Mm -hmm. So now we have this myth as language for how to behave, then we have this myth as language for desire, and then we have this myth as language for what will we accept. Yeah. I think it survived for so long because it is able to be used by the people who need it. Yeah, because it can be – the thing that I I think is so long-lasting about these Greek and Roman myths is their ambiguity and sense of morality – it's the good and the bad. It's that you can change the perspective. It's that we get to tell the story from Lita's point of view, from Europa's point of view. We get to explore what it means to have lived in that society. Having such a rich origin source of the male perspective and that experience where those characters are not wholly good or wholly bad. Yes, <laughs> when you say things perfectly, I'm just like, yep, Trace, you're brilliant. I do the same thing with you when you say something. I'm just like, uh-huh, keep talking. I want to just keep listening. Like, I get it. It's Sometimes there's it's just no response other than like, yeah, dog, you got it. So I want to talk about another piece of art. And this is one of my favorite examples of it. And it was found in Pompeii. Mm. 
which not contemporary to when this myth was born, but as far as like we're concerned and kind of history space wise, it's effectively in the same time genre. Right. About 2000 years after it was buried underneath volcanic ash, a bedroom mural of Lita and the Swan was unearthed at Pompeii. Pompeii archaeological park director Massimo Osana said, quote, This painting, compared with others of Pompeii in the Roman world, is characterized by a pronounced sensuality. It's presenting Lita welcoming the swan into her lap. Mm -hmm. So the city of Pompeii was destroyed during the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. This particular find was uncovered during maintenance of the site rather than a specific dig. Which is so, there's still, for those who don't know, like we are not even sort of close to finishing digging out Pompeii. They basically reached a point where they knew their technology wasn't good enough. And so they stopped and are waiting for technology to get to the point where they can get to more things. Which is so cool. Mm -hmm. Osana reminds audiences, quote, This was another time and a different society. It was not so strange to show a masculine phallus referring to a recently uncovered nearby mural in the same house depicting a fresco of Priapus, the god of fertility, with an exaggerated penis. Quote, The people of Pompeii use this imagery a lot. If you go in the baths, they are full of explicit sexual images. It was really a society where sex was not something to consume just in a private space, but it was before Christianity when the sense of sex was totally different. End quote. Taking that understanding of it, having that mural in your bedroom is more like having a a big photograph of two hot naked people in terms of their society than it would be like today someone having a painting of bestiality. Yeah, it it was a different time and a different culture. And I think it it represents, at least back then, the idea of sensuality, the idea of sexuality, the idea of masculine power – and masculine power as it's tied into sexuality in a way that we wouldn't obviously see it today if you just put a poster of Lita and the Swan in, you know, my bedroom now. Yeah, depending. I mean, if you got Michelangelo's, people might let you get away with it. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So for my story today, uh, for everyone else who's equally as mad at Zeus as Tracy and I are, Mm -hmm. I uh, come bearing catharsis. Yes. Iamene, beautiful virgin of Artemis, was bathing in the river Aphios when Zeus came upon her. He appeared, slinking through the reeds, godlike, radiant, and massive though he was. He'd watched the young girl for some time, over many days enjoying the red waves of her hair, her green eyes, her supple youth. "'Why don't you run?' he asked her, eyes flashing as he stood in the center of the river." Iamene ceased coiling her hair and let it fall like a cloak around her shoulders. She knew stories of women in the wild, come upon by Zeus in his lust and taken against their will. He continued, Allow me to make chase, girl, that I might have my way with you before the long day's end. Iamene stood within the current, but did not move, though the god's voice was a terror to a woman alone. Instead, She took herself to the bank of the river, fluttering her eyes and reclining in the sunlight as if she were basking alone. This she did to great effect. You are a god, 
the greatest of the Olympians. I am a mortal woman, and as a woman, I'll not abandon that which I desire. Zeus narrowed his eyes at her, shifting like a child about to throw a tantrum. No maiden had ever greeted him with anything other than fear. Iomene coaxed, My lord, if you want me to run, turn me into a fawn. Her voice shook, but accustomed to terror, Zeus did not notice the beginnings of her deception. So the king of the gods did as the young woman asked, transforming her clever green eyes into the black pools of a sure-footed doe. The young priestess did not wait a single second and took off running into the woods, darting this way and that, using her four legs to carry her as quickly as they would allow. Zeus snarled with excitement and dove into the trees after her golden skin tearing away to reveal the gray fur of a wolf. Running as fast as he could manage, jaws snapping at her back and claws reaching out in hunger, Zeus could not catch Iomene. They ran and ran until finally Zeus took up his human form and howled, I cannot catch you! Slow down so that I might have my way with you before the long day's end. Iomene, shuddering to a stop as he transformed her back, dipped her eyelashes low. She kept her gaze down until she could manage to cover her terror with a heavy-lidded glance. Oh, my lord, if you would like to catch me, turn me into a fish. At this, Zeus clapped his hands together and pulled back his lips in a silent laugh. All right, he would allow her to swim away for a time, then he would gut her and have her as his own. So he transformed the beautiful virgin into a glistening fish, and he took on the aspect of a bear. Iomene did not wait a single second before leaping into the river and allowing the current to sweep her away. As she darted among the rocks, a silver flash in the dark water, Zeus took his time lumbering after her. In the fading light, the god admired his claws and his hide. He languished by a waterfall, catching one fish after the next, devouring them each in a single bite. But Iomene was nowhere to be found, and though Zeus was satiated, his hunger was rampant. So he thrust his massive paws into the stream in rage. At once, Iomene leapt from the water in terror. Zeus reached out his claws and grasped her for the briefest second. But just as quickly, she slipped away and darted back down into the depths of the Alphaios. Zeus took up his human form and roared, I cannot hold you! Stay still so that I might have my way with you before the long day's end! Iomene appeared in the water, again as a woman. She was slick with the cold of the stream, and her hair clung to her soft flesh like an embrace. Beneath the current, she gripped the creek bed with desperate hands. Oh, my lord, if you would like to hold me, turn me into a mouse. This time, a thunderous laugh rolled through Zeus, such a small creature for such a foolish little mortal. He imagined holding her with his eagle talons and pecking out each bit of pleasure with his razor-sharp beak. All right, he would allow her to scurry away for a time. Then he would grasp Iomene in his claws and consume her. 
So Zeus transformed the young woman into a mouse, tossing her upon the shore with excitement and disdain. The priestess did not wait a single second before she scurried into the high grasses of the fields and hid from her hunter. The god of thunder transformed himself into an eagle, pulling his great body into the air with the beat of his powerful wings. From above, he looked down upon the fields in the near dark. He dove for lizards and voles hiding among the earthworks, but could not find Iamene, and so could not crush her in his grasp. Enraged, Zeus shrieked and dove to the ground yet again, taking up his human form. Now I can't find you. I do not like this game. Come out so that I might have my way with you before the long day's end. Iamene was transformed back into a woman beneath the feet of the god. She trembled at their proximity and his power. He would not be held off with clever deception much longer. Iamene lay beneath Zeus, stretching so that he might behold her. Oh, my lord. If you do not enjoy the chase, perhaps you should allow someone to pursue you. Zeus marveled at the lust he heard within the young woman's voice and felt a stirring no mortal yet alive had conjured. And what would you have me be? asked Zeus, bending down upon the woman, the weight of his voice like the crush of the very air. Iamene sighed to keep herself from wriggling away. After a long moment of preening, she collected herself. Trapped beneath the crouching god, she moved with the slow posturing of a priestess of her order. Tracing the strength of his arm with a delicate finger, she murmured, I would have you be a rabbit, so that I might caress the silk of your fur, so that you might hear my ecstasy within your wide ears, so that you might impress me with your massive, pounding feet. Zeus looked down upon the mortal. And what form would you take to pursue me, girl? Again, Iamene sighed and seemed to think. The heat pouring from the god's body seemed to broil her alive. If the wind gave the slightest push, she would be entirely ensnared against his god flesh. I would be a fox to look upon your divinity with my golden eyes, brush you with my curling tail, graze you with my grinning teeth. I would pursue you to the ends of the earth. She did not blink, only gave a small shrug. But you may chase me again, if you prefer. Zeus smiled with a giddiness Iamene had not yet seen during the god's terrifying game. Slowly, he folded himself over and under until a large rabbit sat between her feet. Iamene cooed at the sight of the sweet animal. She showered him with compliments until he was pleased with the attention and finally transformed her into a laughing fox. Upon her metamorphosis, Zeus did not immediately run off. Such is the folly of gods. He waited, sure the young priestess of Artemis would need a moment to get her bearings and catch up with his cleverness. But Iamene was a daughter of the hunt, and she did not wait. As quickly as she had teeth to bear, she snapped them down on the rabbit's neck. 
The god prey screamed and thrashed within her maw, but Iamene held true, forcing Zeus down into the earth, slamming him again and again and again until his back nearly snapped. The taste of him exploded in her mouth like the tang of molten iron, blood running down her throat, her chest, her loins. She curled around the god, writhing and clawing, groaning with the effort of holding Zeus down and having her way with him. When he was finally limp, and she'd had her satisfaction, Iamene released the greatest of the Olympians from the tearing of her teeth. It was only a small death for a god, but what pleasure to have found before the long day's end. I say this so often, I'm sure it means nothing, but gah, that's also one of my favorite stories you've ever written. One, because genuinely halfway through, I was like, did Rowan write this or is this an original myth like from ancient Greece? Like it just felt so perfect in the structure of the telling, in the repetitiveness, in the cleverness of the main character, in the twists and turns. It, it truly feels like it belongs in the pantheon of myths. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean that so, so genuinely. This is unbelievable as as a storytelling from a story, I don't even have words. It, that was so good, Rowan. That was so good. Thank you. It's interesting. You and I liked our myths, Europa and Lita, for two very different reasons. And I struggled with finding a story to tell for this because I didn't want to retell the story of Lita. Right. And then I thought, hey, it's the season finale of Willing and Fable. Let's kill a god. <laughs> Let's do it. That's what we want our listeners to do to support us is go out and kill a god. And you just led by example. It was really fun. I, you know, everyone wanted us to cover this and have been mentioning it for a really long time. And I think that's because we're really mad at Zeus all the time. Yeah. It, so it, it's it's nice to win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so that's our our tackling of Zeus in relation to the stories we always mention, mm -hmm. his absolutely criminal behavior, why he's written that way. <laughs> it's been a really – I'm glad we waited to cover this for the 100th episode. I think that gave us permission to be a little bit broader and bigger with it than we normally allow ourselves to do. It has not changed my opinion on Zeus, but it has given me a lot of information that I am glad to have and will use as I further explore stories that we tell on this show. Yeah, this episode felt a lot like context, just constant context for the world that so many stories we tell are grounded in. It, it's funny because when I tell people I have a mythology podcast – so many people go, oh, Greek myths. Greek myths. I get the same thing. I get like, oh, so you guys talk about like Greek and Roman myths? I'm like, actually, um, sometimes. We also talk about alcohol and science. It's, you know. And medical history. And, you know, myths that aren't Greek or Roman. Yeah. So that's that. Uh, you want to you talk about some of the questions our, our patrons had for us? 
Yes. Yeah, this was so uh, so sweet of people to send in these questions and, and in such short notice. So thank you to everyone who reached out and sent in a question. Uh, the first one is, you're both very different. What do you like most about each other? Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting because I think, I think, and correct me if, if you feel differently, I don't feel like we're that different because I think some of our fundamental interests and values align, and we've just known each other for so long. But um, I would say for you, Rowan, your um, infinite capacity for both of these things, uh, one, creativity, just you're always learning and growing and finding new ways to be creative, and you're always willing to share that with me in a way that is uplifting. Um, and then you're just your capacity to love the people around you. You love more fiercely than any other person I know. Oh, thanks. You're easy to love. <laughs> but for everyone around you, you, when you love someone, I truly believe there's nothing you wouldn't do for them. Oh, 100%. Like you would rip a man's heart out of his chest for a friend. No Yeah, hesitation. I definitely try to kill God. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> You know, what's the point? You know, we're here. What else are we going to do? Taxes? Like, that's not good enough. No, kill gods. Kill gods. Yeah, I I do feel that we're very similar. <laughs> Tracy and I have known each other since kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And so I've said it before, but we're forged in the same fire. And so much of me was made by and around and for Tracy. Same for you. So that's a that's a very funny question. Uh, but on the surface, I do understand it because um, I come across and am like this big kind of nerdy person. I have been involved in a lot of internet fandom. I love like silly, weird shows that Rowan hasn't seen yet. But then Rowan also has this deep love of theater and books and storytelling and has a, a rich world of experiences that I am not a part of. And on the surface, if those are the things that we're connecting on on the podcast, it looks like we have very different interests that only align on the podcast mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. the broader understanding that we've known each other for ever <laughs> and ever and have um, deep, true, rooted in our soul interests that are bonded and built together. Absolutely. And and one of the things that I most like about you, Tracy, uh, is – is how steadfast you are. And I think that the way people who are steadfast and reliable are often described in books kind of excludes things like being intriguing and exciting and fun. And that's absolutely not the case in real life. I know that you believe the things you say. I know you will be where you say you are. Uh, I do not doubt you ever and that has a taught me to be more consistent that that was not and maybe still is not something that I possess in quite the same way but it also allows me to consistently be thrilled by you because of Aww. I know there's no chasm to fall in then I feel empowered to jump and so we're interacting with you I am constantly invited to be excited and participate with you in a way that only exists because of that particular characteristic you guys everyone needs to have writer friends who are extremely introspective and then ask them what 
their favorite part about you is because there's no more satisfying compliment. Um, Rowan and I also have another friend. Her name is Lisa and she's a very introspective person. And my favorite thing is that when she gets drunk, she will text or call <laughs> or to your face say the most like paragraph long comment, like, like you know, like we've just said to each other about that. Um, so gather friends around you who who can answer a question like that in a way that is so, that makes you feel so loved. And that tell you what they like about you. Yeah. Like pe- some, sometimes people just don't tell you things that are good. I know. And um, we say it all the time in the podcast, like, just text your friends that you love them. Like, friend <laughs> love is so valid. Okay. How do you manage work in the podcast? That mm. comes up on the Discord a lot. <laughs> yeah. So the answer is badly uh, and to the best no, of our abilities. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to let you say that. Because I, <laughs> it, we're just in episode 100. We did just do episode 100. Um, I, I think the reason I say badly is because Rowan and I are both, um, you know, very motivated people who who are willing to work hard for the things we care about. And we both also have this idea of being very prepared. We do not like to be unprepared, either of us. And um, life happens. And so then it comes to being flexible. And thankfully, we have a dynamic where there's so much trust between us that whenever flexibility is needed, we can take it. Mm-hmm. Um, so my answer is, how do you manage work on the podcast? It is the, – the true answer is constant communication about yeah. what you need. Um, you know, if I'm stuck at my day job or vice versa for Rowan and we need to push recording times or, you know, if you're having a bad mental health day and you just can't get it together that day, communicating and and the trust that the other person – is still all in. And if they need a break, it's because they need a break. And that's the end of the story. And you give it to them. And through that trust and communication and flexibility, we've made it work. Yeah. I mean, that's why we're able to collaborate. If if I do work and you say this isn't it, I'm able to not take it personally because like if we go down, we go down together. Like right. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing, well, one Tracy and I have known each other since kindergarten. This friendship is, if not the, one of the most important relationships in my life. In the new year, like, Tracy and I are are going to couples therapy, which we're both really excited about. Yeah, Um, we both asked each other to do it at the same time. Like, we had a list of things we wanted to talk about, and it was on both of our lists, which uh, my personal therapist said was really cool, which means Rowan and I also got an A in therapy already. (laughs) And I just want to stipulate, because so often when people are like, we're in couples therapy, it's already, like, too late. Things are terrible. This is actually – Tracy and I don't really get into intense fights. This isn't because, like – Something is secretly happening, guys. But yeah, no. it's just when something is so good and so important and you're working together constantly and constantly communicating and the stakes are high, it is worth it to begin work when there is no problem. Yes, because what we're doing is taking a lifelong friendship and also combining it with a passion that we care about that is functionally a business. And so that's a new dynamic, uh, especially for me, who is new in this entertainment space. Uh, It's really important for both of us to understand how we can communicate effectively both as best friends and then as business partners and not let those two things get in the way of each other. And so that's why we're going to a couples therapist who we're really excited to meet with in the new year. Yes. And and. Our therapist is very intrigued. Everyone's always like, you're not a couple. Cool. Fuck yeah. Let's do this. That yeah. never happens. Yeah. Um, also, Tracy and I have very fundamentally different workflows, uh, which mm-hmm. sounds like it would be disastrous, but I find very fun. Tracy's a morning person. I'm a night person. Uh, Tracy tends to run a marathon. I tend to sprint. So yeah. 
Trace will work slowly on something over time. I will just like, go so hard f- in short bursts. Mm-hmm. Um, it it It's only good and able to be that way because we just accept that about each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'll hear in, in our early episodes, there was a time where like, Tracy, I didn't get this finished until, you know, two hours before we recorded. Were you nervous? And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> you When you set a deadline, you meet the deadline. I'm not worried. And so because I don't have to wait on you to do my work for these episodes, it's perfectly fine to have different workflows. And I think anyone looking to start a podcast with a friend has to understand that and accept that and and find a workflow that works for you that doesn't cause conflict. Tracy, by necessity, this one's going to be a short answer, so I will leave it to you. Um, When is The Wizard and the Rogue coming out? I miss them. Oh. A couple people asked when we were going to drop Wizard and the Rogue episodes or what's going on with okay. that. Yeah, now let's let's talk about it. Let's talk about The Wizard and the Rogue. So The Wizard and the Rogue, um, for maybe people who are newer, is it, it originated from an episode where we wrote D&D characters for each other. And then we turned it into a broader story about two characters that are not us, that are Thea and Roslyn. And the reason you stopped seeing episodes is because we are dedicating our time into turning it into a real book that you can read. Um that's what we'll be working on in between our break after season three before season four. It's something that we took a, a sort of a class on, on how to do. We'll be, I'm going to be doing more uh, writing classes. Something we're like, I'm like quietly so giddy about. Ron and I had a 20, almost 24 hour. It was a really long planning session. We mapped out the entire story and we're really excited to bring it to you guys, but this time in uh, novel form. Yo, see, this is where the collaboration comes in. Tracy is excited and I'm terrified and I'm just trusting her on that. Um. <laughs> I'm so I'm so excited um, because it's not a story I ever would have told on my own, ever. Um, you know, sitting down, writing through, going through every single scene, all the characters, it was so fun because, again, I know I've said it a lot, but because of that trust between us and the years of good relationships, Rowan would be like, okay, so what if this character does this thing? I'm like, okay, well, how did they get there? And she's like, oh, you're right. Hmm. Okay. Well, what if they did this? I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense for this character. You're like, hmm. Okay. Well, what about this? I'm like, yes, there it is. Like, there's just, there's no shutting down of ideas. And, and so that turned into a story that I on my own would never have told. And I think on your own would never have told and is like the best of both of what we've created by just challenging each other and finding trust and choosing the things that are most important to us to have in the story. I'm excited and I'm just I'm trying to be a person who chooses excitement over anxiety and that's what I've decided with this. And that's why I love you. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that I think about a lot with our workflow, I guess kind of doubling back, is you have a job. This is kind of that balancing work and Mm -hmm. podcast. You have a job where you are not creative in the way that like podcasting demands during your work day. And I have a job where I am creative Mm -hmm. in a way that is similar to this podcast and two really interesting equal and opposite awesome things are happening because you are not doing it all day you have this room this kind of expanse this freedom to like let things simmer and explore them um you are less daunted than i am in a way that uh i find really freeing like you teach me a lot because of the space that you come from and then i am in this position mentally for me anyway, and I certainly don't want to speak for you, but I'm always running. I'm always writing. uh, So I'm just like, to me, it's like being in fighting form. Yeah. So I, I have a whole different dynamic when we work together. And 
I think for some people that could be oil and water, but I love it. Mm-hmm. I like the I my brain doesn't work the way your brain works, and I think a lot of that is just like where we start each day. Yeah, you come to the table with creative ideas I could never have generated. Yeah, and same to you. And you come with experiences and thoughts and and ideas that I also would never have thought of based on the world that I'm in. You know, I I can experience it, it's yeah, it's a great blend and it's a good it's a good way to challenge each other because there are things that I might find to be my line in the sand. This is the most important thing. And then through talking with you and your experiences with the things that you do can point out, well, well, it might feel like it is the most important thing in the world to you, but actually here's where I see the consequences happening and we could shift it into this other thing that you're, you know, that's different or you're more comfortable with or that explores it in another way that is a really nice way to work together. Again, I'll say it over and over and over, trust communication and consistently checking in is really just what enables us to work together because when you you know, when, even in this episode, we we worked together on some of the research, um, especially in the beginning, and there were ways that Rowan would add things in or correct it. And, you know, you could easily take that as, oh, I didn't do a good enough job with my research and Rowan had to fix it. And instead I was like, oh, great. I had something for the baseline there. She added some more stuff and now it is rounded out. Teamwork makes the dream work. And it's it's how you interpret it. It's so funny because I never saw that as fixing. I always saw it as like, let me be of service. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I took it. It's just I could see different people trying to do what we do, having different reactions. So um, another question that I think is really interesting that I want I want you to tackle, Rowan. How has the podcast evolved from the initial planning until now? What unexpected changes to subject, format, et cetera, have you implemented? The initial format of the show, that there is a, a secret hidden episode somewhere, I guess, that we did and practiced with is one of us would do research and one of us would write a fictional story. Mm-hmm. The trouble with that is you need the research to write the fiction most of the time. Right. <laughs> oh, there was also an element with this show of just jump in. You can overplan something. Trace and I love to be prepared. If we'd gotten too stuck in planning, we never would have done it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. So I don't know that the foresight was as... <laughs> clever as maybe some people would expect it to be it also happened to be the pandemic that was really handy time-wise yeah um i I know in season one we did each of us did episodes every single episode we each did a story and i would say season two is our transition into kind of experimenting with what we were calling heavy hitters i think the first one might have been rasputin Mm -hmm. um and then by this season, it's sort of episodes like this where we're both covering stories are the exception, not the norm. And I think you can tell in the research that it has allowed us to explore more with research, um, put our point of views into what we're telling, and not feel like we have to pick and choose what gets to be told to the audience because we're stuck on a time limit for trying to share an episode with someone. And... It sounds so logical when you put it that way, but that was definitely a tough transition for us to decide to do because we, we you know, it's that sunk cost fallacy. We're like, well, we decided we were going to do this. And then we're like, wait, hold on. This is our show. We can just change up how we do it and and allow us to or allow ourselves to be flexible. And, and I think that was kind of unexpected, but very good and something that I'm glad we allowed ourselves to flex into. Tracy was the driving force behind that. Everyone should know I 
got very nervous and had a lot of doubts and we were only able to do it because Tracy was very steadfast um and it was 100% the right choice it i can say has immensely helped my research and my writing yeah it's nice to be able to go into detail and really talk about things <laughs> we talk about stuff oh in our podcast we talk about stuff <laughs> and it's nice when there's episodes that don't or topics that don't have um, quite as much meat to them that we can still come together and and do. So, you know, like we recently just did Deadly Drinks, and that was one that was so fun to get back together and cover together and explore. What is a quote or sentiment that truly suits or encapsulates the feeling of creating this podcast? Whoa. Mm, that's tough because now I need to think of a – well, sentiment, um, I think, something we've talked about is there are times working on this podcast can somewhat be equated to – maybe um, an exercise class that you do with like your friends or something where in the, before you do it, you're like, oh, I have to do all of this to get ready. I have to go. Maybe you're just like a little tired and then you do it and you're like, wait, that was so much fun. I feel better. I feel good. Um, we've, we've said on this podcast before, I have never ended a recording of this podcast and not been so glad I got to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so that sentiment, the sentiment would be grateful. Um, of course, the only quotes popping into my head are because I have the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock memorized. Oh, yes. So just um, a quote that I always lives in my head constantly is just, do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute, there is time for decisions and revisions that a minute will reverse. And so it's just like, just do it. Mm -hmm. Change won't happen until you do change. And that's what this podcast has shown me. It was a leap of faith. You know, we didn't know if anyone would listen to this. And right. um, for me, the sentiment is, is courage and gratefulness. Mm. When I think about the show, the kind of lighthouse for me, in writing an episode, it's who's telling the story, why are they telling the story, who are they telling it to? That's mm -hmm. how I unpack things. But more importantly, it's just kind of the idea of you don't know until you know. Mm -hmm. You and I are talk a lot about how we're working to be better, more empathetic, more knowledgeable, uh, always unpacking internalized racism, misogyny, all of those yes. things. And in the same way that people say like sitting down and sharing a meal is a really great way to know someone, mm -hmm. knowing people's stories helps you understand them and where they came from and what they value. And so often in the show, I had no idea something existed or, or was interpreted the way it was until I learned. Mm -hmm. And we are fundamentally a podcast of two people who are always learning and presenting information. Uh, and I always feel that it is very important to remember that you can't know something until you know, until it's taught to you, until you find the information. And in a 2022 where the internet can be so terrifying and everybody's always trying to kind of cannibalize the left, as I like to say, it's just important to remember that learning is, is part of being good. Yes. And that it is not, I've said it uh, on this podcast before, but it is again, something that I hold very true to, to who I am. Um, being wrong or changing your opinion because you've learned more information and, and now have a different view is not a moral failing. It does not reflect on your intelligence. It does not reflect on who you are. It should not impact your ego. It's okay to think one thing, get new information, accept it, examine it, and then change your opinion and still be a good, intelligent, kind, whatever person. Um, and we do that a lot on the show. And the show has taught me a lot about how to express that and express so many different things to our listeners. 
Tracy, here's a like a fun one to wrap it up. All right. If you had a witch's familiar, what sort of animal would it be? I'll give our listeners exactly one guess before I say it out loud. Our patrons already know the answer. My familiar would would be a bat. Uh, I love bats. I think they are wonderful. They are so good for the environment. They don't want to hurt you. They don't want to do anything to you. They have adorable faces. All bats. I love them all. They have all adorable faces. They can be really little or they can be really big. Um, There is an ologies episode called Chiropterology. It's a two-part episode that is all about bats. And if you listen to it, you will be a huge fan of bats just like me. I can't recommend it enough. I would go with a cat or a fox. You know, eat a god. Oh, fox. Yeah. I feel like fox for you, for sure. They're really yippy and unpredictable. (laughs) But it's your familiar. I feel like in that sense, you have control over it. It's like Mm -hmm. your companion. Right. Yeah, definitely. A cat would just make you sneeze all the time. Everything would make me sneeze all the time. (laughs) Okay. I have a last question for you. This is not from one of our listeners. Oh, boy. I just want to know. What are some of your favorite episodes? And I don't mean like the definitive list, like this has to be it. Just, you know, now that we're wrapping yeah. episode 100, what are some of the ones that you're just like, hell yeah? Oof, that's a good one. Um, I really, I really like a lot of them. Um, it was really fun. And I don't know why this is the first one that popped into my head, but I'm going with it. Writing the story for the end of the world episode where I covered – the kind of the Mayan calendar slash oh. the planet, I think Nibiru. It was just doing that kind of uh, like audio recording. I'm capturing something like that was really fun and really different. I loved getting to put together the Aqua Tofana episode and really explore that. Definitely a peak episode. Yeah, absolutely. This one I wasn't in, but listening to you and Spencer, I had a blast because I was away when you guys recorded that. So I got Mm -hmm. to have fun with it. And then, you know, I always love recording with Casey. Um, Getting Mm -hmm. to to the hot pumpkin ratings was was delightful. So there's just so there's so many. I, I, I think it's like one of those things where it's after you record any episode, it becomes your baby for a little while. And so it's hard to choose. But what, what about you? Everyone knows I love an angry woman, so Medusa, the Sphinx. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and Nana. Oh, and Nana was so good. If we go all the way back, I love the Lean on She, which is yeah. ages ago. We, we're not even structured kind of the same as we are. That episode, compared to what we're doing now, sounds yeah. very different. I really love the Hatfields and the McCoys episode, and keep in mind – Tracy and I exist in the process of the show, and listeners exist in the result. Mm-hmm. So for me, the Hatfields and the McCoys, which is a topic that's covered on podcasts all over, right. I, I don't even think my story for that was like super noteworthy. The thing was, I just remember having like a breakthrough moment of I thought that this story, this history went one way, mm-hmm. and I was wrong. Yes. And coming to the episode with a point to prove and a really strong opinion that episode changed how i approach episodes yeah it did i I agree with that you definitely have found your voice in um using the topic as a springboard for exploring something else which is a really cool way to approach podcasting especially in the way that we do it it is my preferred way to 
write our show. <laughs> yeah. And I love that. And I love that we have a show where, you know, there are times where I definitely jump in and do that. And then there are times where I just get so excited about the actual myth itself and dive into the history of that. And um, we get to play around with what storytelling means, which as a storytelling podcast is very fulfilling. Not to mention you are queen of the happy ending and I am not. I can't do it. I've gotten to the point there's a few stories lately where I'm like, I could do a really dark story. I could do a really sad ending. And I just, that's not who I am. That's not the stories that I gravitate to. Um, I think because I have such a strong sense of, I don't know, I have a strong sense of emotion. Like I don't find horror or sad movies cathartic. I end up realizing that I kind of live in them for a few days in a way that affects my emotions. And so for me, I enjoy getting to dive into what would these stories look like if they were positive or had better endings or a different approach to them that I can also then sink into for a few days and live in that feeling. Hmm. Um, And I think that's sort of where my storytelling comes from and why I'm not the dark and gloomy one on the podcast. And I think you have a more sense of catharsis and a sense of release and a sense of wanting to scratch the itch of the things that might be dark or sad or associated with death. I think that's why people think you and I are more opposite. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, it's going to keep being that way forever and ever and ever. Amen. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) this is not going anywhere, friends. Actually, I should say now... It's not going anywhere as long as we continue to podcast and we only get to continue to podcast because of our patrons. So as is our way with the season wrap up, we would love to give a shout out and thank all of our current patrons because you all make it possible for us to make a show. (laughs) So thank you to Charles E., The NBV, Tiffany A., Caffeine Spiritualist, Mackenzie, Anna M., Sav., Lee B, Mark D, Cassidy W, Morgan V, Song J, Hattie R, Squish of Squaws, Alexandra N, Ellen F, Kurt L, Katrina M, Nimra A, Steph F, Matt B, Barb P, Katrin C, Joe P, Nuria C, Stacy, Bob, Cody C, Reverse Aquamath, Janira, Leah F, Akotoroku, Ducati, Jamie H, Maria R, Mark H, Michael T, Emily J, Mark O, Jeremiah Y, and thank you to all of our patrons from the past and from the future. (laughs) (laughs) Past, present, and future, we are so grateful for you. You are what helps us keep going and enable this podcast and the community that we've built around it is just incredible. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being a part of us this season. So we hit triple digits. Oh my gosh. I don't know what to do with that information. Um, what, should we do a something good, Trace? Tell me something good. I think we good. should. Okay. My something good is so <laughs> silly and little, uh, <laughs> literally and metaphorically. Um, so recently I fell down a TikTok rabbit hole and I discovered these mini brands, which is just these little balls that have, it's like an orange where it separates into five sections and inside is just a very miniature version of a food or like a toy that you've seen, like a mini vanilla extract, 
a mini almond milk. And I've discovered I'm obsessed with tiny miniature versions of real things. So it's been really fun to have these little surprise balls that um, we can open up and explore. So that was something that Jamie, Casey, and I were doing the other night that was really fun. And I didn't expect to get as much enjoyment out of as I did. Sorry, they're just little guys? They're just just little little plastic guys. guys? And sometimes the thing will come with a cart you can put together so you can put your little groceries in your little grocery cart. I got a little checkout stand in one of mine. So now all my groceries are piled on my little checkout stand. I know that I'm just like mini capitalism and I get that, but also it's mini. It's so little. All right, Trace, tell me, if you are eating ice cream, do you choose a big spoon, a regular spoon, or a little spoon? Regular or little, depending. It's got to be little. Everything tastes better with a little spoon. Yes. You get more bites. Yes, and tiny forks. So I get it. I feel like mini minis littles Mm -hmm. is just adjacent yes yeah so uh, that was my fun thing the other day and then tomorrow i am heading into maryland and taking my nephews uh each for their own special day they wanted different things the one's gonna go to a game store to learn to play the pokemon card game and then he's going for pancakes uh, because that's what he wanted and then the other one wants to go to medieval times and so i'm very honored and proud Very proud that I have two little nephews who want to do gaming and medieval times. I um, thank God neither of them wanted to do like a baseball game. That's you lucked out. (laughs) Shout out to my sister and her husband who are raising them to enjoy any and all nerdy pursuits. Yeah, they're they're very cool kids, actually, to be honest. So (laughs) I'm not surprised. Yeah. So I'm very excited. So that's tomorrow. But as of today, the the little mini miniatures bring me a lot of joy. But Rowan, it's your turn. Mm. Tell me something good. My something good is future. Uh, I had to crawl through this week. Uh, So tomorrow I'm going to the Getty. (gasps) Oh my God, so fun. I Mm -hmm. love the Getty and I love getting to go with you. And I only saw like a third of it at absolute most. So you know I'm coming back out there to see more of it with you. But are you going with any friends or just on your own to explore? To be honest, (laughs) I haven't decided yet. (laughs) I made this plan as a kind of like, I need a cookie at the yeah. end of this week. And yes. I am perfectly content to go to museums myself, especially the Getty, which kind of feels like home base. Mm-hmm. I could just go and bop around. But also, you know, it's tomorrow. I could try to make plans with someone. Uh, I have a lot of friends who are amazing museum buddies. Right. I think it will kind of depend this evening on how my brain is is doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just need inspiration that comes in the form of a media that I cannot produce. Yes. Oh, that makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. There will be no painting from me, no the f- Renaissance, whatever, no illuminated manuscripts, no... Yeah, yeah. You spend all day with screens and writing and looking at modern ways of of producing art. So that makes complete sense that going to a museum is a way to disconnect and still find inspiration. Yeah. A friend reminded me recently that you actually do have to exist in the world to get inspiration. You can't just make art in a vacuum, which I remember in theory, but often don't remember in practice. Relatable. So (laughs) happy episode 100. Go out into the world. Be inspired. Be creative. I will see you. uh, Same bat time, same bat channel. We have booked right. (laughs) Yeah. So thank you all so much for joining us for our 100th episode of Willing and Fable. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? See you next season.
Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Do 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 do